Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Friday, July 21st. We are here live. It's uh, it's a little different today, the schedule. I'm going to call an audible. I'm kind of changing things on the fly this week. Uh, I uh, We're looking for Joel and Henry right now. We're going to get them to join us sometime here this morning on the live show. Uh, and then we will move on over to uh, Twitter space today at 1015. So we've got two hours here. Uh, it's either right now it's a free for all or uh, if Joel and Henry join me, we will uh, we'll switch over to trucking technology and efficiency. The, the reason I'm moving it back to the live show, we're, I'm still playing around with the schedule, just trying things, seeing, see what works. Um, Fridays on Twitter just get a little crazy. I think we're all a little tired of the week and we start cutting up a little early. And I, I want to make sure we don't lose the good technical information we have on the show. So uh, I'm going to bring it back. Now, if Joel and Henry want to follow me over to Twitter and we can keep it going. But when, once we get over to Twitter, kind of anything goes. So we're going to move this back. Like I said we'll still be playing around with the schedule for a while. Like to really get it so I can kind of maximize my schedule and be able to do as many hours as possible and we can leave some space to get some other shows worked in as well. Uh, I really don't have a lot this morning. The big news really is yellow. They're done. I think today will probably be the last day. I've seen estimates that as maybe as 90% of their shippers have already stopped giving them freight. If, if it's anything like when LTL companies go out in the past, that freight will sit at those docks and never get delivered. It will end up being salvage at some point. That's usually what happens. Uh, there's, there's no money to deliver the freight. If yellow goes on strike or just shuts down, either one could happen. If they go on strike, though, I, it looks like they would have to shut down within days. They're just going to run out of money. But... People say, well, why can't the freight get delivered? Well, how? How is it going to get delivered? They're, they're not going to send their drivers and trucks out. They're either going to be out of business or on strike. And where there's no money to pay somebody else to deliver the freight. So this is why it's such a big deal for shippers uh, to be very careful. And the shippers had plenty of warning this time. And it looks like they've already bailed for the most part. Uh, now the warning is about UPS and we have to pay attention to this. We don't want our packages getting stuck in the system if UPS does go on strike. So, uh, we're adjusting for that right now. So, uh, you know, we could look back over the history. We were talking about yellow way back in 09, um, when the bailouts kind of started, the union gave them a bunch of concessions to keep them going. Uh, from what I understand, they have not been paying the the master contractor the agreed rate since then. We had a caller yesterday um, that told us about that. They got the big bailout under the Trump administration, $770 million. Uh, and here we are, the whole thing was they're too big to fail. They move too many of our military loads, which may have been true. They moved a lot of military freight, but there's plenty of trucks and drivers and capacity to do that. 
It, it's, it wouldn't even be a blip on the radar. Honestly, yellow going out right now is not that big of a deal for the freight market. I think you'll see a bump up in short-term LTL rates, but I think the LTL companies will pick up the slack pretty quickly. There will be some additional truckload freight from this, not a lot, and we're we're so over capacity right now that I, I, really everything we get out of this will pro- probably be a positive, other than 30,000 people losing good jobs. That happens. This is part of what the union's been dealing with forever. Um, you know, other companies figured out they don't want unions. They started offering better pay and more benefits. Hell, I have a feeling there are probably fast food workers somewhere in the country right now making almost as much as yellow drivers. I think somebody said they're only at like 26 or $27 an hour. They were making that back in the 90s when I used to run with a bunch of those guys doing LTL. The early 90s, late 80s, I was doing that with them. So it's time. They, they just need to go away. It's a shame they wasted so much of our money trying to save them. All right, looks like uh, I didn't have a lot to talk about today, but it looks like you guys do. Uh, so I'm going to get to the calls. Let's go to Oklahoma to get started today. Paul, welcome. Don't give them any more of our money. Just let them fall over and die a natural death. Yeah, let, just, yeah let's uh, kick a little dirt over the grave and, and move on. This should have happened a long, yeah, long time RIP. ago. And we wasted a lot of yeah. our money. Yep. Now, so, had, had Yellow man, gone out yep. in the middle of, say, uh, you know, twenty, the end of 2021, middle of 2022, would have been a big deal. I mean, we were already so under capacity then it would have been crazy. Right now, it's just not that big of a deal at all. It's going to help a lot of people probably stay in business. Yeah. Um, the caller you had yesterday, the, the lady, the entrepreneurial lady that's not been ultra successful, I had a thought yesterday after the show, Steve, the guy at Landstar that mentors drivers, isn't he looking for a couple of drivers? Because they'd be just about a perfect match. He could get them on track, train them. They'd make some money. That's a great and idea. Eventually, they could end up on a truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. That's a great idea. That really? would be a perfect fit. So if they're listening, yeah, they should call us. He'll or, get them on yeah. The, yeah, he'd get them on the right track. Yeah. Yeah, good idea. And making money, and the, and they'll be paying their taxes because he does it correctly. So that's right, and yep. and learning, which is big. You know, you get to see it firsthand there. Yep. And and Steve is an awesome educator. He's helped a lot of people learn this stuff. You're right. That's a good fit. Yeah. So no charge for that. Thank you. <laughs> paying it forward. Thank you. So, well. So, <sighs> What else you got? Okay, that's all I got no, today. No, you got to hold it. on, hold on, don't go anywhere. I got something for you. Oh. Okay. I I can't say too much about this right now, but it's. It, yes, I'm interested. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. We could be done there then. Um, I'll yeah. give you. I'll give you kind yeah, well, of I, a clue. We uh, we work with some companies. Yeah, well, at that, least it gave me a bit of a, a bit of a oh, clue. So, okay, yeah. got it. All right. We, she's, she's really efficient. We just talked about this like 10 minutes before I went on the air and she's already told you. 
Well, she sent me emails yesterday. Oh, okay. oh not email, text message. Okay. Actually, we, might have been the night before she sent me a text message. We did talk about it then. I responded yesterday. Got it. Okay. We did talk about it then, too, so she yeah, really so, is on the ball then. Yeah. Well, thank you. We're, yeah, yeah, she's, yeah, so, but yeah I'm, I'm interested because I've been looking for something like that, but so yes, I'm interested. So, and Good. everyone else can just wonder what we're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. yeah they're wondering what the hell are these guys talking? Yeah. They're very curious now. They want to know. Yeah. But we're not going to tell them. Stay tuned for further episodes. <laughs> That's right. But wait, there's more. Yeah. You're just not going right. to hear about it today. But there's no... There's no free steak knives. <laughs> That's a, yeah. Ginsu knives, isn't that what they were? <laughs> Weren't they always Ginsu knives? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. So, All yeah. right. Good but stuff. Just pay separate shipping and handling with Yellow Roadway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it must be Friday. Uh, yep. Uh, okay. Right. Have a good weekend. We'll talk to you Thanks. soon. Let's, uh, oh, who do I have here? Uh, you would think I would recognize these numbers by now. I'm going to guess it's Joel. It is. I, I How are you? Good. Good morning. Did, I um, I called an audible and changed our schedule on the fly today. Oh, that's fine. I just figured I'd call in, and if uh, if you were short on topics, I got all kinds of trucking stuff to throw that's, at you today. That's kind of why I moved it back. You know, it, it was fun on Twitter, but on Fridays we things seem to fall apart on Twitter pretty quickly. Yeah, and it got a little crazy, <laughs> yeah. and it, it's fun, but I don't want to lose the information from this show. I want to make sure we can always get to the trucking stuff, and I just had a feeling on Twitter on Fridays, uh, probably not the best fit for this show. Now, if you guys want to follow me over to Twitter when we're done, you're more than welcome. I'd love to have sure. you join me over there, too, but I want to make sure that we can stick to the information that we put out on this show. Absolutely. So what do you Sounds got? Good. Oh, all kinds of stuff, really. Um, one of the things that I really, really want to touch on um, when we're putting data out into social media, we want to just make absolutely sure it's as accurate as possible. And whenever we can cross-check or you know cross-reference data, we should always try to do that. I know it's kind of a pain in the ass, and it, it can get a little expensive, really, when you consider your time involved in that. But, you know, we always complain that, well, the OEMs never listen to good ideas, and, and they, they never, you know, adopt any of these things that we're doing out here in the real world that seem to be working very well. And a lot of that is just simply because they don't trust our data sources, and if you consider this, if you have an engineer and he's looking at two data sets, one shows a 10% gain in fuel efficiency, but it's just backed up by one data set. Oh, yeah. There's another idea that has a 3% gain, but it's triple verified and he can really trust that data. You know, they're going to put their career on line going after that data set that's only backed up <laughs> right, one way. Right. And, you know, if there's an error, in there, and it's so simple to make errors. Um, you know, I, I hired a guy specifically to double check my data, and we do find, you know, errors. And, and you know, being able to catch that and correct it in a timely fashion and, and you know, make it known that, hey, here was an error, here's where it occurred, here's how it occurred – and we fix that so you can have confidence in the data that we're putting out is, I, it's just super, super important. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we, that's, 
and, and we've addressed this in a lot of areas. Health is a big one for us. That's one where we have to really be careful. And, and man, do I spend a lot of time trying to triple verify stuff before we say it or post it. And then it's not always even a mistake. It might be six months later, we learn something new, especially around health. And this is going to be the same thing with these new engines and new technology. Sometimes it's going to be a mistake and we hope we catch it. Other times it's just going to be, we were just wrong or we've learned something new or there's new information, but we have always tried to be really transparent. We're going to make mistakes. If we find them, we will admit them and correct them and we'll move on with new information. Yeah. And and that's, that's the way it has to be. So, you know, in the past when we were just basically using data, uh, Strictly for our own operations, you know, your suggestion is to track 30, 60, 90 through fuel gauges. And that that holds true if you're using data internally, that is fine. But when we're sharing information, we, we kind of want to make sure that we're comparing that and, and cross-referencing that. I, I think to the engine ECM is just a great way to do that. Today's ECMs are extremely accurate. And I know when my ECM isn't quite matching up with what my fuel receipt says that I've made a mistake somewhere and I can go start looking for it. Otherwise, if you don't have that second source, you can make, it's, it's so easy to make a mistake, you know, at the fuel pump. Uh, maybe you didn't fill it. Maybe the truck wasn't set in level. Maybe you just entered the mileage wrong. Like I'd done the other day, I turned a couple numbers around and I was looking at a 15.2 mile per gallon. And I was like, this can't be right. Cause the right. ECMs tell me 12.1, right. you know? So, so this is extremely, extremely important. Think about this. Remember there was a, t- and I don't know, I haven't been involved with anything on Facebook in actually a couple of years now, but remember in the nine plus mile per gallon group, there was a time where the admins didn't want anybody posting a dash picture. Remember, don't be posting dash pictures. Wait, yeah. That's changed now. And that that there was a time where those things weren't very accurate. I checked them all the time and they were just all over the board. And I didn't really like looking at that. But that that's changed. We'll now admit it's changed. And you really can use that dash from most trucks. But you should also do what you do. Verify the dash. Yes. Yes. You have to verify the dash in order to make sure it's accurate. And so often I'll hear well, that ECM is not accurate. If your ECM is not accurate on a modern truck, you've got problems that you need right. to straighten out That's because if that ECM is not accurate, chances are your by hand calculations aren't accurate. And it's, at that point, it just becomes a feel good thing. You know, I, oh, I track it by hand. Well, well okay. <laughs> and, and let's say this based on what we know about how sophisticated these ECMs are, they use a lot of data to decide what to do next. They're doing that every millisecond. And if we're off on that gauge, it's very possible the ECM's getting an incorrect reading somewhere. The engine may not be performing the way it should be. You're you're exactly right. The engine may not be performing the way it should be. Um, There's there's a, a hundred different things that that could be an indication of. So, you know, making sure that your revs per mile on your tires or in the case of Volvo, they convert to impulses per mile because it's a Volvo thing. I don't know why, but that's what they do. Um, you need to, you need to verify that stuff. It will cost a little bit of money, but then you can be assured or relatively assured that, 
you know, your, your dash is going to be accurate and you can, you can verify numbers. Now, if you're using all this stuff internally for just yourself, you're not putting it out on social media to talk about how great your fuel mileage is to, you know, promote a concept, an idea, a product or something like that. I get it. You don't have to go through all this shit. As long as you know, there's going to be some drift in that data and you're okay with that. Just do the 30, 60, 90 on fuel gauges and be a happy camper. Um, but if you're going to promote an idea, a concept, a product or something like that, you know, if, if we don't do this ourselves, I can see a point in time where the government going to step in and say, Hey, if you're going to put this shit out here, you need to be doing this. You know what I mean? Because right. they're, they're going to look at this as, as advertising of, of some type. Um, and they're not entirely wrong. Um, you know, I post this stuff to show people what I'm doing. I'm not necessarily advertising, but I can understand how people are going to look at it that way. So I strive to make sure, absolutely sure that this stuff is accurate. And and we try as hard, you know, one of the things I used to do when, and still do when we, you know, come up with a new concept or idea, is this really working? You know, and, and a lot of times in the beginning, it's all going to be anecdotal. This person tried it. Here are their results. Were they doing this properly? So, and then our kind of default was always, we need about 70% out of a group. And the bigger that group can be, the more accurate this is going to become. But I found that no matter how rock solid some technique was, there was always like 15 to 20 percent of the trucks that you just didn't see the results on. And we know why. Listen, it's, never, it's never going to apply. Yes, it's never going to apply across the board. And, and that, that kind of leads me into one of my next subjects that I, I want to talk about. So I've, I've been putting a lot of stuff out about the air dog lately. It's a product that I believe in. Um, and you know, there have been several people that have gotten it. They put on their truck and they say, well, it, it starts quicker. It's quieter. Um, but you know, I, I really don't see the, the power difference or the fuel efficiency gain. So let's just start with what the product was att- intended for originally. And that was to really prolong the life of the fuel injection system. And it absolutely does that when we take entrained gases or vapor or air or whatever you want to call it out of the fuel system. By default, you have a denser charge of fuel going through the injector and you have better lubricity. There's no way around that. Right. So you are going to improve lubricity. That's just how the system works. Nowadays that we're catching emissions, um, there's another benefit that you're going to have reduced particulate and reduced NOx levels. So we're going to take some strain off that emission system. There's no doubt about that. And the thing of it is, is your typical average owner operator or small fleet cannot measure particulate NOx. They just, they just have no way to do it. Right. So, you know, we went to the Ohio State uh, Center for Automotive Excellence and, and had those types of tests done. Um, they also confirmed that they saw a fuel mileage increase outside of the expected normal data drift. Um, through 15 different tests, they, they saw that every time it would come back that this is outside the expected drift. Now, does that mean you're going to see that in your operation? Uh, it, it doesn't. We don't uh, know. There's a good chance that you will. Well, and, and like you said, there's so many variables, and a lot of this has to do with the spec of the truck and the duty cycle. And here's what we do know. When we do dyno testing with the air dog, 
we see the torque and horsepower benefit at very low RPM and at very high RPM. We have to remember mechanical fuel gauges have a sweet spot. They have an efficiency range that they operate in. They don't like very low RPM and they don't like very high RPM. <laughs> mechanical fuel gate or fuel pumps are tied to the, the tied to the engine RPM. So when you run very low, as in a downsped operation, you're going to get some cavitation in that pump. There's just no way around that. And so the electric pump, obviously, is not dependent upon engine RPM. And we can apply a gentle pressure to the front side of that pump to eliminate cavitation, which helps to eliminate entrained air and vapor. And that will ultimately give you the opportunity to see either increased productivity or increased fuel efficiency, sometimes both, not very often, but it does happen. Where we run into problems, and it's more on traditionally geared trucks on the newer ones, where the fuel pump is happy, the mechanical fuel pump, when you're running at 1,300 RPM, you don't see a lot of gain in fuel efficiency or power, but you're still getting the benefit of the maintenance reduction to the fuel system. So when we look at maintenance costs for that, and when you go to ATRI, you know, it's when you look at total cost of maintenance, 37% of that is for engine maintenance and 14% of its exhaust system on today's trucks. Think emission system. Um, I have seen where the average owner operator, when they get pulled into the shop for an emission system related issue, is going to spend around $7,000 Yeah. on average when you include your downtime. If you just have one of those instances eliminated, more than pays for that system. Yes. Y- you know, you know what I mean? So it, there's a lot of benefits to those systems that if you're not thinking outside the box and really looking at the maintenance, the potential maintenance reduction um, from a catastrophic emission system failure, uh, and this is certainly going to help because we're reducing NOx and we are reducing particulate, that all by itself, even if you don't see a gain in your fuel efficiency, which is not going to be huge, it's going to be right. there, but it's not going to be huge. Um, I, I think it's it's a system that's well worth the time and money to, to put on a, a modern emissions truck. I agree. I've got several thoughts on this. I should have been making notes, but I'll see if I can go back through this. So one of the things I think, you know, when you say this system really shines at low and high RPM, there's one of the problems right there. Most trucks on the road are not running at either low or high. They're right smack in the middle. Um, almost everybody today seems to be running about 13 to 14 almost all the time, all day long. So you, you Correct. The other thing I would say about it is, is it turns out many of the things we talk about that, that do work, we know they work, they've improved fuel economy. In essence, they're not really doing anything magical. In fact, we could almost say all they're really doing is making the engine run the way it was designed. Right. Well, this is exactly right. So I'm sure when you talk to an engineer engine, they they want it to be getting the full fuel load, every pulse with no air in it. That's what they want. That's what it was designed for. And then we find out later on there there's it's not perfect in the real world and we can 
fix it. We can make it better. But I think all we're really doing is getting back to where Volvo wanted the engine to be anyway, or any, any No, that is, that, that's a hundred percent correct. And this plays back to the data that we talked about. So the Volvo engineers are well aware of entrained air and fuel, just like Cummins is, right. just like Caterpillar was, just like everybody understands. There's up to 10% entrained air, vapor, gas, whatever you want to call it, that you cannot see with your eye that is in all fuel. Right. It, it, it is just there unless you're removing it. it. It just is. And so they take to actually take that into account when they're trying to design their systems, when they, they're going to put a horsepower, on radi- a horsepower rating on something, they're going to say, okay, well, we got 10% trained air. Right. That's going to knock it down this much, so we're going to put this and this rating on it. So the first question is, well, if this thing works so good, why don't they do it at the OEM level? Let, let me tell you something about OEMs right now. Everybody's working on electric trucks, and that's where all the money's going. And yep. it is extremely difficult to get any interest from an OEM on an ICE engine, especially something like this, that isn't very well understood. And, you know, if you don't have that double and triple check data to stick in their face, they've got zero interest. Right. You know, it, right. it's not saying that, you know, we're horrible people. We don't know how to track track data, but the, the fact remains, if you're only tracking it one way, there's huge room for error in there. So, you know, fortunately I've been doing things a certain way and, and I've been able to get some interest on, on, on this side of it. And, and hopefully we can get some movement possibly with, uh, Good. with the air dog. The, the other thing that, I want to point out right now is I'm kind of struggling with this in all areas of, of almost everything I teach or talk about business, personal finance, um, you know, profit and loss in the business itself, health, whatever it is, we really, really try to simplify things as much as we can. You have to. Uh, especially with this format where we're, it's not like we're sitting down for eight hours a day with charts and, and really learning this stuff. You know, we're, we're hitting the surface of all these things over and over and over every day. And I, I fight with the idea between trying to keep things simple to help people start improving. And then we run into this issue of all of these things are so nuanced when it comes right down to it, all of this stuff is so nuanced. And you say, if they're only tracking it one way, I deal with people who aren't even tracking this stuff at all. And yet they want to uh, argue yes. with you about everything you say. And I'm saying, wait a minute, I've yes. got data. I've got data. Let's see yours yep. and we can talk yep. about this. But 90% of the time I'm dealing with people who have almost no data and I want to get nuanced and, and, and it's a struggle. I, it, it, it's a struggle every day with that. I, I, I 100% agree. You know, you're in the trucking business to make money and move freight, not to analyze data. My brother struggles with this. I'm a data geek. He can't stand it. <laughs> I, know, right? I, I put the shit in front of him and I'm rubbing my hands going, man, this is great. And he's like, take this shit and get it out of my face. I know. You know what I mean? It, yeah, because it, it, it takes away from the day-to-day operation of the business. And quite honestly, you know, your, your average owner operator and, and look, I'll, I am being supported by OEMs to help them gather this information out in the real world. That's just the bottom line. If I didn't have that support, 
I could not do this either. Right. I would have to focus right. strictly on the day-to-day of trucking. And this is why I'd never gotten into business for myself for the longest time because I was in a pretty good area with my brother where I was being paid to look at data. That's what I like to do. <laughs> right. So I had the opportunity to, to kind of put that on steroids. You know, I, I do work for Volvo in the field, testing and consulting with Dana, with BASF, you know, with some pretty major companies that, that support me and, and they need to understand what's happening in the real world and they want, you know, data that's double and triple checked as well. And I just think, you know, we've got a lot of people that, you know, they want to talk about ideas and concepts and I think that is wonderful. I encourage everybody to do that. I encourage people to take the screenshot of their dash and to be excited about their fuel efficiency. But just remember, because this gets depressing sometimes, sometimes I'll talk about something where I've seen increase in fuel efficiency, somebody else will do it and they see nothing. That doesn't mean it's wrong. There's <laughs> just right. some differences going on here. And right. Yeah. And you know how your, what your testing protocol looks like and how you analyze it and what your resolution is into that data all have huge impacts on this. And I can tell you right now, as much as I love the fuel gauges, 30, 60, 90, that is, doesn't have the resolution that we really need to dig down. It will spot a, a, a potential trend. Absolutely. Trends go up and down. Um, it is valuable to the individual business owner. Um, but when we start to go beyond the business of trucking and, and get into ideas, concepts, and products, then, then we, we have to take it to another level just so people take us serious, especially at the OEM level and, and engineering, they're going to make decisions based on data that they can verify, not a data set that looks pretty but is not verified. Yeah, and that is absolutely what fuel gauges is. And one of our biggest struggles, and, and there's just nothing you can do about it except educate people and, and you know, keep nudging them, is just poor data itself in, in our state stuff. I mean, we look at some accounts and we just have to throw them out because we know they're wrong. You know, you know this when you work with data, you've got the outliers, you got to get those out of the way. Um, our, our biggest challenge is I wish I could get everybody to be consistent, put in as much data as they have, their average speed. I mean, we, we, we give people the opportunity to put everything in there that could affect fuel economy. And, and the more we can get people to take a couple extra seconds and, you know, fill that out, be accurate. And like you said, all of a sudden you put in your fuel economy and you see you got 11 miles to the gallon when your average is eight. It's a clue. Go, go look and see what happened. There's probably a mistake there. And a lot of times somebody will have that weird outlier. And, and sometimes it's 22 miles to the gallon because they had, it was a keystroke Correct. error and they don't correct it. You know, and, and, and Correct. we Correct. can't, but, uh, you know, so all I look at fuel gauges data as the way you just described it. It's that big, we could be adding to this constantly every day with all these different trucks, all these different situations, and we can spot big trends. We're not going to be mm-hmm. the one to prove that something really increases your fuel mileage by three tenths. I mean, at some point we might with big enough numbers and if we can get in and really analyze those and crunch them better, but we can see the big trends. Nothing wrong with that. That's a great place to start. Now, if we see a trend, 
Now we know that trend is worth digging into deeper and getting better data. Correct. Correct. No, you're 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 exactly right. Um, you know, sample size matters, and you've got a hell of a sample size over there. There's no doubt. Uh, data stream possibly a little dirty, but that sample size is huge, and that is extremely important in its own right. And there is something to be said for that. Um, it's so why we made it, it free. It is useful. Yes, it's we, useful in certain situations, but it, it's definitely not the end all be all. Um, now, if you noticed. I have opened up a second fuel gauges account where I have ECM data and then I have receipt data in a separate. They're both tracking fuel efficiency. Right. The receipt data is actually tracked by fill up. My ECM data, I'm kind of just pulling randomly and sticking in there. Interesting. I'll stop for the night and I'll yeah. look at the ECM and I'll, I'll throw it in there. And then I will occasionally match them up, fill up for fill up. I'll do ECM. And it's shocking how close the two are. But I have that ECM data, so I've got a very good idea of where things should be. And so when I when I do see an outlier, like like we we're talking about on the receipt data, I catch it instantly. I have an I, idea. You know, you you just know that that is not right. Yes. Uh, I you need to get with Aaron and. Let's okay. let's in our next software upgrade of fuel gauges. Let's let's incorporate this concept into the software and make it easy to do that. Let's make it easy to compare. I your think ECM it would data. be huge. Yes, I think it would be huge to have a box in the in the regular uh, form there that that says ECM data, receipt data, and and um, try and and you know. Yeah, use work it that as a, in so you don't have to open up a balance. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah, ab absolutely. Because we're accurate enough now on ECM. Look, if you got a, if you got one of the very first electronic engines, okay, it may not be as accurate. But I would say anything over 2015. Oh yeah, um, yeah I agree. Your your ECM should be accurate enough, and your dash should. And if it's not then you know that you probably got a problem with your by hand calculation as well. Just because you do it by hand does not <laughs> magically make it super. In fact, on the 2023s, you have more of a chance of that dash being accurate at any given point in time than any of your by hand calculations. That dash, it just shocks me how accurate that thing is. Very, very, very accurate. Well, well, let's talk about this when it comes down to nuance and accuracy in, in the really good fuel mileage testing. They don't go by gallons, do they? They weigh it. Uh, no, many and times. You, <laughs> that's that's exactly right. When you're really starting to split hairs, they're gonna they're gonna have a test fuel cell. It's gonna be weighed, and you know you're accounting for elevation and the barometric pressure and right. all kinds of stuff that that you're looking. And then that's the stuff that Messiah Valley does, and they do a very very good job. All the big fleets are involved with Messiah Valley, essentially that are interested in fuel efficiency. Um, it's Daryl Bear over there. He is excellent. Um, you know, we, we butted heads a few times uh, over certain things, but that's to be expected. Um, you know, not everybody can have the same ideas and concepts, but I'll tell you, the, the guy is just straight up good. There is nobody better when it comes to that type of testing. He is just that damn good. So um, when you see testing coming out of Messiah Valley, you can absolutely trust that. Yes. Um, yeah, I just, agree. Just, 
they do good work. One of yep. those guys is a, yep. a good friend of John Walco. I, I'm not sure if it's him or somebody. Else. That, that's that's Daryl. Yeah, what I thought. yeah, I think that's Daryl. He was in the race car in the race car world as well, and yeah. uh, at the similar level to where John's at nowadays. So yeah, they, they both know each other. And, yeah, uh, I we had a call. Uh, the both. three of us had a call a couple of years ago and and mm-hmm. talked about you know, maybe some kind of a consulting company, kind of what you were doing. And I, I was the one that just didn't have the time or the bandwidth to take on one more big project like that. Um, sure. But I remember sure. talking no. to the guy and he was absolutely brilliant. Really. I, oh, I, he is. Yeah. He, he is. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Yep. Absolutely. So, and also, um, you know, I, I, I got to give the guys over at Pittsburgh Power some credit. They seem to have an evolving, oh, an evolving take on horsepower and torque. I listened to the Power Hour the other day, and um, I don't remember who it was, but, you know, they had made the statement, you know, it's not all about just how much horsepower, it's about when it makes horsepower and where it makes horsepower and, and it talked about the importance of parameters and getting the, the fuel pedal response right and hats off. That's exactly the kind of stuff I've been talking about for years now that it, it's not just about, Oh, this thing makes 800 horsepower. It's, it's more about where it makes horsepower in the RPM range how you're geared. It all comes down to tractive effort calculations. Yep. Uh, and, and I would love to see those guys start doing tractive effort calculations because they've got some guys over there that are, are really good as far as, you know, it, you never hear me say tuning very often. I'm not a fan of tuning, but if you do a tractive effort calculation and you know the specific areas that you want to hit and you can understand the impact at that point, tuning starts to make sense just to tune an engine in my estimation to a generic level to make X amount of horsepower at 1800 RPM to me completely worthless. Now I know the Pittsburgh power guys will be pulling their hair out when, when I say that, but you know, if you really want to have a shot at increasing fuel efficiency, while improving drivability, you need to do that tractive effort calculation, understand the impact of the two you know, me, that, that you've got going on. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I, I absolutely love about Pittsburgh Power is it, we're now talking about tractive effort and some pretty high level stuff that we haven't talked about before. And we're constantly evolving. And at the same time, those guys probably still build more mechanical Cummins than anybody in the country by far, than probably any 20 other shops combined. I mean, they're still, you know, it's a big part of their business. They have got a lot of guys that are still into old mechanical engines and they've been their customers for like 40 years and they still do a lot of that stuff. That's kind of crazy. And then, then you go from the mechanical to the early electronics and all the things we learned about those. Then you have another big shift around 04, 05. Now we got to go from electronics to the early emissions. Then we go through each round of emissions. Now we're onto these really modern, Modern, new <laughs> engines where we're talking about architecture and uh, you think about that that is a wide range to try to manage in a shop environment I, 
it, it's huge. And, you know, the, the one thing that I have always said, and this will shock a lot of people, if I was going to run a mechanical commons, that's the first place I would go. No, you know, I, that, that is where I would be. Uh, there's, there's no question. I wouldn't waste my time anywhere else. You know, Bruce knows that way better than anybody else that I'm aware of. And he's got, you know, guys that understand it. And if I was running a mechanical commons, that's exactly where I would go. That's where I would be. Um, you know, and this is kind of a, a, a segue into um, into the architecture you had mentioned in the engine. And we've always talked about engine architecture in relationship to down speeding and to the emission system and how it's a benefit. So one of the other topics on the show that he brought up Tuesday was, you know, the, the, the responsiveness of the engine and the throttle response. And this can go back to the architecture of the engine as well. So there's a couple of things you have to consider, and I, I think it was Leroy. I think he specifically brought up the DD15, and he said, you know, it's kind of famous for its lack of throttle response, and and but once it gets pulling, it'll it'll keep pulling, and that is by design. Obviously, when you're driving for fuel efficiency, the first thing that you learn as a driver is being smooth and steady on the pedal. So some of that is in their parameters. But when you look at the base architecture of the engine, you look at how big the crankshaft is and the DD15. You know, it has four-inch round um, rod journals on the crank. Uh, 3406ECAT has three and a half inch rod journals on the crank. It's got and, a massive crankshaft like the Volvo does. And we and always so when you have this, you have we yep, have always ahead. considered the cat like that bulletproof bottom end. That's like the you know <laughs> that's the heavy yeah. duty engine, uh, but but not necessarily. That's not the truth anymore. Uh, no, that's that's not the case. And here's here's where the driver confuses us, and this goes back to the architecture. So when you have a big crankshaft like the Volvo, like the Detroit has with that, that big four inch rod journal, and you have the longer rods with the relatively, it's, it's called rod to stroke ratio. So you have to look at the rod to stroke ratio, but when you have that, that longer rod, um, you will have slower acceleration of the piston away from top dead center. So after you have that initial explosion, you have slower piston travel that has to get that big, heavy crankshaft moving. So it's going to feel a little lethargic, and that's by design. The same thing with the Volvo. People get into a Cummins, they get into a Packard, and they go, man, this thing has got snappy acceleration. It's, and It's responsive. It's by design. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's responsive, but... When you look at the crankshaft, they're not near as well put together, especially in the case of the PACR. The PACR has went with an extremely lightweight crank and rod. So X amount of fuel behind that with their geometry really accelerates that piston. It moves that crank in a hurry, and it feels very responsive underfoot. Um, there are some advantages to that. If you've got an operation where you're operating in traffic every day and productivity is your priority, that engine's going to get up and move faster. It just is. It, you know, I have a good analogy. You know, just, just mm -hmm. for anybody that's familiar with motocross, think mm -hmm. of these, the engines like the pack car, the Cummins, we talk about lighter bottom mm -hmm. end, better response. Those are the old two stroke motorcycles. And these new mm -hmm. heavy-duty lower pistons, those are the four-strokes now back in motocross. I mean, that that's 
really kind of the same feel of what we're talking about here. And honestly, what people should realize, the the Volvo and the Freightliner model, that bigger bottom end, slower, much, much easier to drive efficiently. It, 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 I, exactly. It, it, it almost is forcing you to drive efficiently, correct. And, and what we would describe this as is the power band. You know, the, these engines have a big, wide power band. It's easy to drive them in their efficiency range. These other engines that might be really snappy and responsive, kind of like a two-stroke, you're shifting all the time constantly to keep that thing in the right range. Well, <laughs> this, is, this is part of the uh, how the engineer envisions, I think, how these engines are going to be used out in the real world. And, you know, I, I always looked at the, the PACR engine as a European continental design where you're going to be in traffic more, you're on grade more, a lot more stop and go. So they want that thing to be able to turn up. I think it works very well for the right. European duty cycle. I'm not so convinced that it's the greatest design for the American duty cycle where we have longer length of haul and we're cruising at speeds About where 90% that small crankshaft, <laughs> yes, the yeah. small crankshaft in the PACR, that engine is capable of going down to 900 RPM for a short period of time and making 1,850 pound feet of torque. Is it capable of running there all day and not spitting the crank out after a couple hundred thousand miles? I'm not personally convinced that it is. Maybe it does. I, I don't know. I can't say for sure. I haven't run them. But when I look at the dimensions of the crankshaft and everything that I've read and all the engineers that I've talked to, when they talk about crankshaft durability, you know, it's, it's all about the size of that crankshaft. They are reducing parasitic drag by downsizing the rod and crankshaft, right. where Volvo and Detroit, they are reducing parasitic drag by slowing the engine piston speed down. The big benefit I see to the bigger crank and slowing piston speed down is with correct gearing, it gives you a much, much wider operating range. Yep. When you have the smaller crank that you can't drag down low, you by default can't downspeed it as much. You can to a certain point, but not as much. And you're operating in a narrower range. Absolutely can get great fuel mileage within that range just much harder to keep it in the range like you talked about a lot more shifting involved there's a whole lot more going on to keep it in that efficiency range good stuff um we've covered a lot of ground today and we are slammed with phone calls okay we should probably get to some let's get started let's go to yeah, yeah, yeah. this is this is why i moved this back to this show this format is much better for this show if we want to cut up later on today on twitter we can uh there's just too much good information to get out so i'm glad we did this um let's go to wyoming lenny jump in and join us here oh hey guys um uh joel i um want to talk about the air dog system since you just brought it up over the winter, I was down for a couple of months. Just I take off two months over in the winter. And I was going over the truck, and I started noticing I was having a little bit of a fuel leak on my passenger tank uh, underneath the band, the front band. So I drained the tank and pulled it off, and the whole tank underneath the bands was cavitated all the way around on both bands. And the only thing I can think of was the fuel, the hot fuel was coming back out of the engine. 
and it was cavitating the inside of the tank and, you know, popping the aluminum off of it. And it was just, it actually was creating holes all the way around it. So I took the tank off and, and sanded it all down, ground it down. And then I got some uh, aluminum epoxy from West Marine and then coated it, put new bands on, slapped it back on, and it's good. But after that, I put the air dock system on to eliminate that problem and grounded the tank. <laughs> I ran a, a wire off that tank. You don't have the problem on the, pat, on the driver's side tank because it's grounded. But I, I don't know about the newer Volvos, if they've solved that problem. But have you heard anything about that? Or had, You know, I, I've, only, I've only been running one tank for years. <laughs> so, but no, yeah, I do know that, that tr- it is yeah, a continuing problem. It, yeah, it, 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 yeah it, it always is. You've got cavitation, electrolysis, the, the calcium chloride working from the outside, getting trapped up underneath the rubber on the... On the uh, the band that goes around the the tank. So it, it is definitely a problem. I can't say that I've noticed if it's more of a problem on one side or the other, you may be exactly right. Having a ground. I know when we ground our fifth wheel pins, we have much less problems with them seizing up. So it would not surprise me uh, by grounding that, that you have less of an issue. Yeah. Um, Okay. Um, The other thing is we, we blew our rear main seal. Uh, about a month ago, it started leaking, uh, just real slow. And then we came out of Seattle. We dropped our first shipment in Pennsylvania two weeks ago, and we started getting some clutch slippage. So we, uh, after we got unloaded, we, um, we were in Baltimore area. We um, dropped our trailer, bobtailed to Patrick's shop, and dropped it off to him. And mm-hmm. we basically gave him like three days' notice. And uh, mm-hmm. And uh, he got it in. Um, he had the truck for a week. We grabbed a rental, bobtail back so we could load. And mm-hmm. uh, so, let's see, he had, he had it for eight days. Replaced everything. The, the, the rear main, flywheel clutch, um, actuator, the lines. And they, he did notice one thing. Um, when I got my oil changed on my, on my eye shift, I don't mm-hmm. think they put the right oil in it because it was the filter was changing colors. So mm. he put the right oil in it, changed the filter for me. We're we're right around six hundred and eighty thousand right now. So, mm-hmm. but um, uh, he did a really great job. Um, and, oh, and he noticed the rear motor mounts were shot, so he replaced those for me. <laughs> nice, Patrick yeah. is excellent when it comes to anything Volvo. He is very very good on that Diesel Brothers, and he's he's in Madison, correct? Yeah. Well, right, right uh, across the border by Kenosha, right off of okay, uh, Kenosha. I don't know why I keep confusing. Yep. Man, he's in Kenosha. That is I right. Do he's the same thing. Me. <laughs> he's gonna kill me. I keep <laughs> keep sending people to the wrong city. So yeah, no, he he does he does a great job. Clint Bankston in Greensboro uh, area, uh, South Carolina, is another one that is a. I I don't want to say Volvo only, but he specializes in Volvo. And I had an issue with an electronic leveling valve on my truck. I had called two or three dealers. And even with the corporate connection, you know, it was impossible to get in. I called him. He had the right leveling tools. He had the right software. Got the, had it set in there, boom, on the truck in 10 minutes when I rolled in. He's another one that if you have a Volvo problem, I don't care if you're in California and nobody can fix it. It's worth the trip to go see either one of those two, Patrick or oh, yeah. Clint. Um, 
both of these guys really, really understand Volvos and not just the engines, the transmissions, which is extremely important because yep. you can understand engines all you want these days. And if you don't understand the transmission hook to it, it could be a problem. And the new electronically controlled suspensions, which a lot of people aren't aware of, but they're out there nowadays. And the adaptive loading uh, uh, suspension from Volvo is an electronically controlled suspension. So these guys are on top of their game. They know what they're doing. They're fair, they're reasonable, and they will bend over backwards to get you in. Oh, he got me out of there for $6,600. I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, that was, yes. for everything that he did, that's amazing. And the great thing about Patrick is he owns trucks as well. He has a small yeah. fleet out yep. running, so he gets it. You know, he really yep. gets it. He's just not a shop guy trying to sell you something. He, you know, he yeah. feels your pain too. So a, a great, great guy to know if you have a, a Volvo and you, you know, you're, you want to get to an independent shop, um, highly recommended, um, uh, Patrick or, or Clint, either one of them, both great guys. Yeah. Well, well, well it's funny when we got to Waukegan to pick up the rental from Penske, it's only 20 miles from there up to his shop. Um, mm-hmm. my sister was bobtailing the vo- this Volvo up there mm-hmm. and she's, she calls me on the phone. She says, "The clutch, it's, it's the clutch is uh, showing the slippage message popping up on the screen." So we, we didn't have much longer, right? To it, right to get it to the shop. Um, awesome. Just, uh, yeah, it probably would have let go within the next hundred miles. Well, I'm glad it worked out for you, and I'm glad he took care of you. Um, you know, yep. I just wanted to put it out there. He's great job. Very well reviewed, and and you know, I I, I have conversations with Patrick. And, uh, you know, he's, he, a couple of times said, Hey, I want to come down to your guys' shop and watch how your guys do things. And, and that's kind of saying something for a guy at his skill level yeah. that he's open-minded yeah. enough hey. that he would be willing to watch how somebody else does something. So hey, Joel, it's pretty cool. Joel, yeah. I'll, I'll add to that. Yeah. That, that attitude of his is why he has that skill level. I, I agree. I absolutely <laughs> agree. And, and, uh, Clint, Clint is the exact same way down in Greensboro. You know, we, we talk on occasion and, you know, we, we talk about, you know, the exhaust plungers and retorque and injectors. And when I was down there to get the uh, leveling valve done, he brought that up. He said, you know, when I do an overhead, that's just part of the overhead now. He goes, that's, that's what we do. We retorque that injector yeah. and, and we do them exhaust plungers. They don't have to ask for it. So awesome to hear. All right, Lenny, thanks for the feedback. Uh, we got to move along today because the calls are piling up on us. Let's uh, let's go to West Virginia. Let me hit that button right. Randy, welcome. Hey, Kevin, I'm going to make it short and sweet. I'm kind of disappointed in Paul this morning. As soon as you said Oklahoma, I was like, howdy. Paul doesn't give us no howdy. I, I missed that this morning. No. I, that might be a first. Oh, yeah, I missed it, too. I really was looking forward to that. I know. You was talking to a lady yesterday, and Paul brought it up, about her working for Steve's. Yes. I was going to say, if they're, if they're running a team for 52 cents a mile, they're out of their mind. They're, they, could get, they could go to work for Boyle in Florida and make $200,000 a year as a team. And learn about being an owner-operator, which is what they want to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that Steve idea is a great idea, really great. I agree. I think we're all in agreement. Joe, how you doing? Good. Doing well. Good. Good talking to you. I'll let you go. All right. Thanks for the call. That's all I got today. Good good stuff. I agree. Uh, Let's go to, 
Hey, Joel, I want to just get your comment mm -hmm. on this. Um, I saw something yesterday to talk about verifying data. I'll be completely honest. I did not have time to go try to verify this. Um, <laughs> but I, I saw where in the last 12 months, uh, up until June of this year, we lost 50,000 carriers. Wow. That's a big number. Seems like a big number. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a real big number. Yeah. <laughs> now, we know most of those are going to be single truck guys that got started because rates were so high and they went out and grabbed their own authority and they really don't know what they're doing. And um, maybe they're not gone. Maybe they just gave up their authority and went and leased to somebody. But even then, that, that's still a big number. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is. It is a big, and it, it's it's needed. Yeah, we, we need to wash that capacity out of the system. So now I've noticed, and, and here's what I've been doing. And this is non-scientific, and I just typically use this internally, but I'll, I'll let you know what I, I've been doing. I get on the the Schneider load board for my area. I do a hundred mile radius around Norwalk, and I have been looking at the first fifteen loads at random that pop up, and I total them all up and I look at the average rate per mile and the last two weeks that I've done that um, I've been in that 255 to that, 260 a mile range power so, only let, let me um, ask you something we and, historically without all the weird stuff going on would you ever think 250 something a mile is a freight recession no, no, not even. <laughs> yeah, close. I was pretty, pretty happy with right. with all that because I'll tell you, Schneider Power Only is my backstop. That is my my plan. If everything else blows up and goes to hell, I can. I know I can do that. I know I'm going to get paid, and you know I, I don't have to have a trailer. I don't have to have all that expense associated with it. And I know I can survive on that. Now, am I going to get filthy, stinking rich? No. And you know what? But, that number, you know, that's, that's transportation. That number fits right in with something we reported yesterday. Brian shared his numbers with us. And when we look at a report out of profit gauges, when we talk about a mm -hmm. revenue per mile, we are talking about all mm -hmm. miles that are put on that truck. That means when he starts right. it up at home and drives somewhere to wherever, Every single mile put on the truck, we track for revenue per mile. So that should not mm -hmm. be what you're just talking about. You're talking about what the rate, mm -hmm. what the loads are paying. We have deadhead to get to them. We have all these Correct. other miles. So yep. yesterday, Brian shared yep. his numbers. I'm not going to remember them exactly, but I'm thinking his all-in was like 230-something, almost 240 a mile. That's strong. That That's is, really yeah. good revenue. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. I know fleets that we benchmark against and, and they're moderate size fleets. They're not huge, but they're not small either, you know, and, and right now they're kind of okay at that dollar sixty five to dollar eighty five a mile range. Um, because they're they're thinking, Oh, this is a huge freight recession and I think for fleets it is it, because it, it's, it's much okay, harder right. to manage right. a bigger fleet. Yeah. Yeah. So, but for the small guy, if you're willing to do any work at all, even on a load board like Schneider, that plus $2 a mile freight for all miles, that's a possible thing. Yeah. Now, <laughs> every time I say this, I get huge hate and, oh, Schneider sucks and, and it's all heavy, cheap freight, which is all BS. But I will say that in certain areas where Schneider is not strong, 
That you, probably is the case. You, North North Central Ohio, I think, is ground zero for Snyder. Right. <laughs> They're right. very, very strong in my area. So there's a lot of opportunity that a guy in yeah. in I, I don't know, yeah. Florida or or Texas or California may not see. Don't they have you a know, big they, yard they over may in be very well just Ritman? Is it Ritman? Mm-hmm. You get right out in that they, area, they Seville, Ritman area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah. yep. Right off uh, 224 and yeah. 76 as you're going into Akron. Yeah. There, so what? Right past the truck stops. What you're so, trying yeah. to tell me is this: this issue might be nuanced. <laughs> oh, just maybe. <laughs> <laughs> just maybe. The, the thing that people have to understand, and I know, the second somebody says Schneider in conjunction with a load board, 95 percent of the people out there are going to go, "Oh, that's bullshit freight." I, I, but they're just going to say that they say the same thing about and C. Not H. Even Robinson <laughs> and TQL and, and yet yes. you can, I, I've had people do it. We've talked about the stories. I've had people that run only for one of those big, ugly brokerages and they're doing really well. Yes. Yes. It's, it's all about the relationship you establish. Is there crappy freight and dishonest people at a huge mega brokerage? Of course. Of course there is. Yes. And it's your attitude and it's your, <laughs> and it's your knowledge that helps you sidestep that and establish a relationship with that. And I told you this in the past and, and I'll say it again. You know, my brother has a very successful midsize fleet. Yeah. And he has direct customers and his number one worry right now is his direct customers. What if they go out of business and he is actually working with Schneider and some of the bigger carriers to diversify as a backstop, just like I am the backstop is fleet. Yep. So these things, there's opportunity, no matter what size you are with these big, just don't dismiss them because Joe Schmo at the truck stop said Schneider's bullshit, cheap, heavy freight. <laughs> don't don't do that. Do do your homework. And if it is in your area, I get it. I'm not claiming that they're the greatest exactly uh, right. greatest thing for everybody out there. But I, I can tell you, if you're in northern Ohio, you should definitely be looking at them. Yes, absolutely. All right, we got to get back to the calls again. Let's go to Iowa. Nick, welcome. Hey, Kevin. Thank you for taking my call, brother. I would like to promote Pittsburgh Power. Uh, this 127, I never imagined that it would run like it does with their program in the ECM. Uh, it, is, uh, it is amazing. This thing's been a dog ever since I've owned it. And I drive slow. I don't idle. And uh, like I told you a few weeks ago, I overhauled this thing. I got about 20,000 miles on it. Oh, my goodness. This thing's awesome. Uh, you know, I, I've said this many times. I've I've had their 12.7 tune, and, and I've talked about it for a long time, and I know we were just talking about tunes. This is one I can personally vouch for. I love this tune. This is one that it is a more drivable truck. It's more enjoyable. Uh, it does have some of that response we're talking about, and yet it helps you get the best fuel economy you can out of that engine. If you've got the other specs down right, that tune for me uh, on a 12.7 was one of the best things I was doing to those trucks. And I, you know me, I'm doing all kinds of stuff. I'm, um, all the stuff we talk about, and yet in my mind on that 12.7, I really loved their tune. Yes, uh, ever since I've owned this thing, it would have a miss when you would take off, you know, and blow out white smoke. And it did it every once in a while. But after I overhauled this thing, it, 
it was doing it every time you take off, every time you take off. So I changed the ECM, got a remand ECM. It quit, and then it came back, and I called Pittsburgh Power. I was up over in Idaho Falls, and I got them to do their their program. You, uh, you know, here's— ECM, and it, has, it is gone. Here's another area where I can say hands down. Nobody else in the country really even comes close, and it's the late 90s, early 2000s electronic engines before emissions. That they are, all of them, Series 60 especially, the N14, the the cats from that era. Um, we know, when I say we, um, you know, fuel economy-wise, we know those trucks inside and out. I, I doubt that there's much more we're going to learn about getting better fuel economy out of that generation of engines. They know those things inside and out. We know all the other things you can do to those trucks. Um, and now we're, you know, moving on to the more modern and, and we're going to stay on top of this. But, you know, Joel, I'm kind of with you. You're starting to feel a little left out with the internal combustion engines because nobody wants to talk about them anymore. Uh, all the money's flowing uh, into he, the the uh, other truck. And, and I'm saying, wait a minute. The, the new trucks are really kind of exciting right now. We should be more focused on these things. <laughs> they're actually getting to the point where they're really good and yeah. everybody's kind of lost interest. I know. Kind of depressing, uh, wait but, a minute. Uh, Let's not kick these yeah, things to the curb yet. There's a lot of potential <laughs> here. Finally. Yeah. Just a, a quick thought on the um, the early electronic engines before emissions. So if we remember, I think Detroit was the, really the first in the marketplace with a fully electronic engine. And we have to remember that I remember when they right. came into the Wasn't marketplace. Wasn't that like 1985 they released that engine, I think? 85, 87, right around, Somewhere in, there, right yeah. around in that area. But if, if you remember, they worked very closely with fleets, and this will explain why, you know, owner-operators generally are not real happy with the trucks, because the fleet's goal was to make that engine lethargic to get maximum fuel efficiency, regardless of who was behind the wheel. Right. And so I think you're exactly right when you get a guy that, that has a goal in mind when they're tuning that engine, they can do some pretty spectacular things in terms of performance. The, the the drawback is, and it's always been this way, and you've talked about this before, is that when you do up that performance, then you as a driver have to really pay yeah. attention. And this goes to what Bruce always talks about, driving by the booth gauge. In that particular instance, really makes some sense. You the know, driver you've done becomes modifications. Critical. Now you yeah. have to drive it. Otherwise, you're going to get spanked fuel efficiency-wise. Well, if you drive it right, you may actually pick up a little bit. So, um, well, let's it, think about it's interesting. That, let's the think dynamic about at work that there. generation of trucks. We're talking about electronic, but pre-emission. Mm-hmm. When when we take those and and start to modify them, like you said, and there's a lot of things we can do to that. That ultimate truck. So I could go back to our two signature trucks because both of them were based on those engines. We, I mean, we achieved nine on the first one and we were really coming close to 10 on the second one before we started to have the problems we had with it. That was pretty impressive for those trucks. I mean, nobody was really even coming close to that. But we also said this truck is never, ever going to be bought by a fleet. It's just not going to happen. These are complicated trucks to own and drive. 
They just are. Mm-hmm. They, and, can, and, can you drive? Can you can you drive by your barometer? Because uh, I don't have a so, boost gauge. No. Both of them are really important on these engines. We use those two together to do a lot of troubleshooting as well as are you driving right? But the the if I could only have one of those two on those engines, it would be the boost gauge, not the pyrometer. If I can have them both, then now, I really you have- want both. But pyrometers, for one thing, respond way too slow. You know, you're looking at temperature change, which takes a long time. Boost changes almost instantly. Um, the pyrometer can now, tell us a lot. Does your scan gauge have it? Uh, it does for most engines, yes. And and the reason I have to say that is because it depends on the ECM build, what's available. If that information oh. is in the ECM, the scan gauge can access it. If it's a build that maybe that wasn't even in the ECM, and, and most of those things have to be on the electronic engines. But I always kind of... You know, just say it, it should be, but in some cases it might not be. And again, okay. now if we were nuanced here again, if I have my choice and I have one of these engines and I want to drive it right by the boost gauge and the pyrometer, I'm going to make sure both of those gauges are mechanical, not out of the ECM. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I'll just get a get one and put it in here myself. Then. Yeah, uh, the, that, that's the better is, way to uh, go. Uh, since I've got about 20,000 on this, me in framing this thing, uh, and I've got blow by a little bit. Is that, is that, is that normal? Well, this truck's always had it. When you say blow by, I'm assuming you're meaning watching the bottom of the engine and you're seeing stuff come out of your blow by tube. I just see a little bit of smoke. Yeah. It's not real so thick. It's I, just I've real seen, I've uh, seen series sixties. That if you pull up to an intersection, you smoke people out with that stuff. Sometimes it's so bad. And yet, (laughs) surprisingly, nothing seems to be wrong. We're not using oil. We don't really have a a lot of what we would call true blow-by. I don't know what that phenomenon is on that engine. Joel, any thoughts on that? Uh, Not necessarily on the Series 60. you know, I, I'm assuming we'd probably have the same thing going on with the Volvo, except they have a spinner filter that catches all that, um, so it's not vented to atmosphere. I, I think a certain degree of that is absolutely normal. If there's oil coming out with that, I think then, then you probably right. yeah, that's problem. a different story. But right. uh, yeah, you're always going to have you're always going to have a certain degree. Isn't there a, like a manometer test or something you can do there to, is. to check low by a, a prank a yeah. crankcase pressure test? So we know what the normal pressure on a solid engine should be, and if you have more pressure than that in the crankcase, that's a true indication that we're getting combustion gases past the rings. My thought is if you just had this in framed and you're only at 20,000, you're still breaking in. Yeah. And once it's fully broke in, you'll see a reduction in that, uh, in that bl- blow by or what we're describing as blow by It's probably just normal during the break. And um, if you're not getting a lot of oil and it's not super heavy, I don't know that I'd worry about it. And then the other number yeah, to well, watch got... that, that tells us for sure, just watch your oil consumption really close. Yep. Yeah, I've got 10,000. This this would be my third oil change on it since I've changed. I got 10,000 on this oil, and it has used uh, a gallon of oil. And I think that's all this pretty cool. So when I do uh, uh, new break-ins on Volvos, uh, I, 
almost without fail, you'll be checking oil, checking oil, checking oil, and then boom, it's down a gallon out of nowhere. You <laughs> yes. put that gallon in and you run it and it never uses a, another quart. You know what I mean? On occasion, I'll get them where they will use a second time it'll do that, but that's a very rare occasion. Once the ring seat up, everything seems to be uh, seems to go well with them, and I, I just don't have an issue with them. So I, I think right. once your ring seat here, you're probably going to notice a, a reduction in that oil. If it doesn't slow down, then you're going to want to start to investigate it a little further for sure. Yeah, well, it's always burning a gallon of oil in between oil changes for about 12, 13,000. That's why I usually change my oil. It's always done yeah, that, but it, I know it's been in frame, so it's going to be different. It's got 10,000 right. on it now, and it's just burned a gallon of oil. I'm thinking that was pretty good. You know? Right, yeah. I just haven't. I don't have enough experience with the 60 series anymore. It's been so long since I run them to say that's completely normal. You know, I, it, I have no idea. It, it can be. We, we've seen it in yeah. general terms. Yeah. It sounds pretty normal to me, but, um, uh, no, I've Bruce always crew up there at Pittsburgh would know better. With mine, I've always ignored that blow by tube. Like I said, if I can get under there and find oil, worst case scenario was actually wasn't on a series 60. It was on that Mercedes, uh, First time it went out, it was almost pouring oil out that tube, <laughs> blowing all over yeah, the that's, truck. That's it was problem. so bad. Yeah. Well, it turns out, I've told this story so many times, um, turns out that was the first truck I ever had the OPS installed at the factory. And they did an absolute mm. beautiful job of it. You know, really nice looking factory, looked like it belonged there. They took the overflow tube from the OPS and wrapped it with the blow-by tube from the engine. So it looked like one. Mm. It, you couldn't really tell there were two there. The way they did the wrap on it, it looked like one big tube. And they mounted the OPS too low so it couldn't flow the oil back into the crankcase. It was just spitting it out the overflow, but it looked like it was coming out the blow-by tube. So this thing was using oh, a gallon of oil every 400 miles. We were putting a gallon and a half of oil a day into a brand new truck. And I wasn't here. I was in Alaska and I was out of cell phone. And I told everybody, I'm going to be gone for three weeks. If a problem comes up, just deal with it. So when I got back, luckily, I got back just in time to hear this story about how they've been fighting with this for three weeks. And the fact that it's scheduled to go into Detroit tomorrow. Detroit did all the work on the Mercedes. It's going into Detroit tomorrow for an in-frame on my brand new truck. I'm like, wait a minute. Are we sure it needs an in-frame? We got to check this. So I go over there. I open the hood and I'm standing there and it took me maybe three or four minutes and I'm looking at it and I'm like, that OPS can't work like that. And then I follow the overflow tube and I'm like, oh, oh, this is so easy. Uh, I turned, yeah, there off, it is. <laughs> turned off the OPS because we have the valve right there. I just turned it off. I said, drive it today. See what happens. Driver calls me up and he's at his halfway point and he's like, it didn't use any oil today. I'm like, oh, man, I'm glad we <laughs> caught that one. <laughs> well, Kevin, right. since you... Since you've owned all these these twelve sevens in the past, have you had any uh, problems with oil leaks? Like I say, when I overhaul it, I, I put all new no. gaskets, everything in there. No, too. and and you know oh, why man, I this, never this had trouble is. with oil leaks? I ignored them. 
<laughs> it's fine. It's just they were no trouble at all. I just ignored them. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'd love to have a nice clean engine that doesn't leak. Uh, it's kind of like owning a Harley or an English car. Sometimes you just have to deal with yeah. those things. And it's almost uh, never worth yeah. it to try to fix them. It's really expensive. Arizona yeah. wrote me up for it. Did they really? Huh. Yes, yeah, they did. It, 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 they it, sure did. It's just my experience. You just deal with it and then fix as many of them as you can when you do the in-frame. Very seldom did I ever pay money oh. to try to track down one of those oil leaks and fix it. Oil leaks well, I did drive me nuts. I know. I, I know. I, and one of the things that, that we tried... And it worked for a long time. We had a 3406E, and uh, it, it would leak some oil now and again, and I got sick and tired of it. And we power washed everything, and we tightened up everything that we could tighten up. And I had a can of this clear spray adhesive, and I sprayed that whole damn engine. <laughs> it didn't leak at all. <laughs> and it lasted for about eight months before it finally started leaking again. There you go. So that's what we did. We just yeah. power wash her off every eight it months. We sprayed her down with clear spray adhesive. And yeah, there you go. We're yeah. done. <laughs> that's the cheap fix. That's about all I would spend on yep. this kind of stuff. Yep. Oh, okay. yep, I agree. I, I might do that then. Yeah, and it I seems like it's leaking I, from I, that. That bail housing that bolts to the engine. I, I hate that. I mean, any of us who like engines and we're gearheads, we, we don't want to see oil leaks. But I'm also really practical. That oil leak is not hurting anything in reality. And it, it's just not worth the money to try to fix these things. All right, y'all. I sure appreciate talking to y'all. Y'all All right. have a good day and God bless. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Let's go to Michigan. Charlie, welcome to the program. Charlie, are you, oh, wait a minute. I got to hit the button. Sorry about that. Charlie's back there yelling at his phone. Charlie, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, how you guys doing? All Good. Right. Good. Um, I got a 2016 Packard manufactured 515. My 90-day on this is 745, and my cost per mile is $0.44. Good. Uh, I just had a tune at Pittsburgh three weeks ago with uh, Leroy and I saw a little bit of improvement, a little bit on the boost and I can keep it in gear a little bit longer uh, on the lower end. I can keep it in tent uh, down about 1100. Um, I'd like to get better fuel mileage. I baby it. I ease into everything and the next step is to change out this rear end. This, this is a 336. Well, let, let me ask you something before we say that is the next step. It may be a step. I'm not sure if it's the next step. What else have you done? I know we know you have a tune, helped a little. Okay. What else have we done to this truck so far for fuel economy? All right, I get the Michelins. I get Super Singles. I get T6 540. I get the Fleet Air Filter. I get the Catalyst. I've had the catalyst in for 890 fuel ups. Now. Wow. Okay. So Good. That's helped a lot. Yeah. My levels down below 0.1, and my fuel dilutions uh, one or below. Okay. And my silicone, my last oil sample of silicone was about six. Perfect. So. So you've done a lot. Uh, it yeah. might be time to start looking at some other options. What about aerodynamics? What kind of trailer you pull? Well, it's a 579. I'm a high haul tanker, so this tank is four feet behind. So, 
I would know, I still look at, you know, I, I would still on just about every truck I own, I, I would throw the air tabs and the flow below on. Um, both of them are good aerodynamic improvements. No matter what you're pulling, really, we've seen we've seen improvements there. And by the way, you know, Joel and I were talking earlier about the odds of an OEM picking up an aftermarket product are really, really slim. I mean, we think about all the stuff we've proven over the years that actually works. We know it works. And it never makes it to the OEM most of the time. When something does, it catches my attention because it's so rare. Flow Below is one of the few products picked up by the OEMs fairly quickly, which tells you something. So it's one of those things that sometimes we forget about, but there's some improvement there to gain. I do think if you want to get more, we probably do need to look at um, gearing. This is an engine I'm not nearly as familiar with. Um, I, I don't know really how to nail this thing down uh, for fuel economy. Actually, I know I, Joel does. I, I think where you are, you're you're pretty solid. I would be happy with what you have, and I don't see a lot of other gains we're going to make. Maybe a couple aerodynamic things. So let's talk about um, weight and speed and terrain. Kind of tell us about the operation. All right. All right. If wait, I'm always at seventy nine thousand. I'm either at seventy nine thousand or I'm empty. Yeah, and that's that's and, the more uh, important thing to know. That that matters in how we we do some of this. You're not always at seventy nine. You're there fifty percent of the time in empty. My RPMs. Lot, yeah. yeah, my RPMs are fourteen eighty at seventy, thirteen eighty at sixty five, twelve eighty at sixty, and I. If I had my way, I'd run at 58 miles an hour all the time, but I can't because most of my runs are 600 miles. Okay. And that's the way I, you know, I got to get, I got to hop on it. So you, and I know when I'm running at 1380 and 1480, it's, it's not good for my after treatment system. So, so just a quick question here with the, with yeah. the tune that you have in the engine, do you know where, peak horsepower and torque occur and and how much it is? No, because what happened is I have to get call them up and I got lucky. I said, you got time to do a tune because I was picking up right near there. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they said, just bring it in. Okay. So that's what I did, but we could, I couldn't get it on the uh, dyno. And uh, so uh, Leroy said, next time you're in the area, we'll, We'll try to sneak you in on it and see, see what we can do. He called me back a couple of weeks after the fact, and uh, I said, it, it, it's a little bit of improvement. He says, all right, we need to put it on the dyno so we can really see where this thing is doing. Well, so. here's here's the thing that you, you want to be aware of. If you tune this with the 336 and you make it work really well with the 336 and say you go from 7.4 to 8. Um, which I think would be, it would be a reasonable expectation. Um, if you re-ratio it then in search of more, that particular tune possibly may not jive with the new ratio and and it may cause some funky things. So one of the clues that you'd given me when you were describing what's happening, you said it, it pulls a little better. You're in top gear a little bit longer, and you saw a small improvement in fuel efficiency. So those two things coincide. Essentially, what you've done is, via horsepower, you've sort of downsped the engine because you're staying in top gear more, and you're keeping your average RPM slightly lower. 
that leads me to believe that a ratio change in this thing is, is going to give you pretty good bang for your buck as long as we're not getting way away from peak horsepower and peak torque with it. So those two things are, and even if you just had a general idea, maybe if you called them and said, Hey, where, where do you, what's your best guess where this would be? So you have some kind of idea obviously be better to put it on the dyno and nail it down for sure but it, it it would be nice to have a general idea so you know am i looking at a 279 ratio or should i be looking at a a 250 you know what i mean um uh, 264 yeah, <laughs> a possibility one thing i'll caution you and i know we we like to throw around 264 all the time as kind of a do all ratio um it, could possibly be spot on for that, and it may not be the best choice either. So understanding where peak torque and peak horsepower occur and then doing that tractive effort calculation, this is what tractive effort's all about, and this is what optimizing the tune and the gear ratio is all about, in my opinion, and getting this right gets you the maximum amount of fuel efficiency you can possibly get out of this engine. Hey, Joel, let me help you. All right, so you're saying that Mm -hmm. this is nuanced. Yeah, yeah, it is. There is no doubt. There is no doubt. I mean, yeah. we could go 264, um, but, you know, if, if, if we actually do the calculation, we might find that 250 puts you in a much more advantageous right. place in terms of right. uh, cruising and, horsepower for the area that you run. And here's the thing. There was a time when we didn't understand some of these things, and we were basically making on our rec- our recommendations on results years and years of results. We've tried this ratio. Look, these 10 trucks got a really, that's fine when that's, that was what we knew. Well, now we understand there's a better way to calculate this and really, you know, I used to say, look, it, 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 you could put in 264s, you can put in 273s. They're, they're so close. I can't really tell. Well, now we can tell the difference. Now there is a way. Yeah. And now that we have that way, we should absolutely use it before we go spend the kind of money it takes to change gears. Absolutely do the work and, and let's really get nuanced on this before we do it. Here is my thought on this and take it for what it's worth here. I, I am not a PACAR expert, um, but in general terms, since you have what I call digital loads, you're either loaded or empty. There's no in between. You're going to want, you have an overdrive transmission in your truck or is it direct drive? I don't know. It's like, I just gave you the, uh, the hey, hey, 14, okay. at, in top gear that had to be, that might be with a th- single overdrive. Three thirty. With three, yeah, 336, it sounds like it's probably overdrive. Um, so what my goal would be, knowing your duty cycle is, look, overdrive, everybody talks about direct drive being the most efficient gear. It is the most efficient gear when you're only considering the transmission, and that's it. Power transfer through the transmission is most efficient in direct drive. When you start to consider parasitic drag in the engine due to RPM, if you have a big enough drop from direct drive to overdrive, you can actually overcome the the disadvantage of overdrive because you're much more efficient and reduce parasitic drag in the engine. So this is a balancing act. What I can tell you, what I've learned over the years, and this will apply to all engines, when you are light, overdrive is almost always more efficient than direct drive because you can drop your piston speed down and get more of an efficiency gain. 
you're running quite a few empty miles, you're going to want to gear this truck with a fast enough ratio that you can run in direct drive within the power band and be able to really lay it down and actually use that overdrive when you're empty. My gut feeling is this is going to be a 247 or a 239 ratio with an overdrive transmission. How do I know overdrive transmission? Uh, it should say you could take the VIN number and call the dealer. Yeah, and they'll tell you. That's the easiest way. Has it been changed? It, okay. Should I go get this retool first on the uh, dyno, and then then have like Bruce recommend a ratio for this? Uh, have you guys calling back to you guys? Putting it on the dyno is going to help because the tune could have changed the map and, and the horsepower and torque. So that's what Joel's saying. If we have that number, then we can really pick. Otherwise, we're, we're making some guesses. Okay. So getting that number first and okay. then you get as many opinions as you want. Uh, you certainly call back here when we've got it or call on yeah. a Tuesday. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about it. But knowing yeah. now where that horsepower and torque curve is is the next thing we need to know. One of the areas where me and Bruce might differ in, in our thought process on this. You know, obviously Bruce has been around a lot longer than me. He's, he's used to the mechanical engines and typically the guys that have been around a lot longer, they have what I call the big hole mindset. They want to get it in top gear, keep it there or in direct drive and keep it there. And that's what they want to do. They just want to have enough horsepower where you don't have to shift it and you're just going to keep it there. And my mindset is let's use two or even three gears if you have a deep enough reduction, which you won't in that transmission. You can possibly get two usable gears. And so our recommendation will probably vary a little bit, and then it'll be up a decision what makes sense to you. Either one of the recommendations will work and are most likely going to improve uh, your fuel efficiency. Um, a lot of it's going to depend on your driving style. If you're okay using wow. overdrive when you're light, direct drive when you're loaded, you're going to be in that 247 to 239 range and still maintain startability. If you just want to put it in direct drive and just keep it there and not have to fiddle with it, not you know, you're going to run 264 direct. So that'd be nice gear then, right? Uh, if it's an overdrive transmission, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, what else is going to say? I wanted to talk. Well, hey, Kevin, you want to hear my numbers? Yes. Through May? Yes. Uh, all miles, 261. Wow. Um, I, yeah. I, 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 I'm, and, I'm really uh, confused. I am. I'm watching all this data. I've been watching it for years. I, we lose 50,000 carriers. There's this freight recession, except nobody I know seems to be experiencing a freight recession. <laughs> what the hell's going on? Well, I, I am. I am because, you know, I'm, I'm going to be down at least 30% from last year. Wow. Last we must year, have a... was great year last year then holy cow oh oh my net profit was two dollars a mile (laughs) yeah this is such a crazy cycle i i just posted um they are expecting this comes from freight waves and i trust their data that they're predicting that that we might be seeing spot market rates go back up again here real soon well 
I'm leased on to a carrier, so and uh, and so my net profit per mile is 144, and this year and 117 is my expense with my salary. So man, oh man, yeah, you, my salary. It, you can't beat those kind of numbers. Those are just uh, th- that. Those are good numbers in any year I've ever been in the industry. Really, um, we got to move along. Yeah, we got absolutely. we got to knock out some calls here. We're going to go to Pennsylvania. Randy, welcome. Hello, Kevin. Uh, the other day you had mentioned about, <laughs> excuse me, the perfect hamburger and the grind. Yeah. But never mentioned what the grind was. Is it a fine grind, a coarse grind, a double grind? So, so What's I, the secret? I, I don't know the technicalities. I'm, I'm going to go learn this because I'm going to play around grinding my own. Um, I will tell you that it is a much coarser grind than most people are used to. Gotcha. Yeah, the the uh, you want to stay away from a really fine grind if you want a good burger. I find the the more fine it is, the worse that burger is going to be. Um, how coarse you can go is what I'm going to start playing around with. This burger that I got from this local farm is a really coarse grind, and man, does it make a good burger. So I'm going to play around with a couple of things on this. I'm going to play around with grind, and I'm also going to play around with what's the best cut or combination of cuts to make the best burger? Like, do I want some? The one thing I thought, I actually made burgers one time out of filet, thinking it's, you know, the most tender cut on mm-hmm. the, it's awful. Mm-hmm. If you make a burger out of just pure <laughs> filet, it is absolutely awful. So my, uh, my uncle owned a grocery store and was a meat cutter and a butcher for oh, a long, long yeah, time. And he would always make fun of, he would always make fun of the fine grind hamburgers. Say that's They're meatloaf. That's t- not a hamburger. Yeah, <laughs> he would always say that. That is good, meatloaf. I like that. that. I, I like that. I'm stealing. Yeah, that. and yeah, and he would also he made homemade bratwurst and the German sausages. And yeah, stuff. and like bratwurst was always a coarse grind as well. And if you made it with a fine grind, you'd say that's liverwurst. That's not. <laughs> that's not a bratwurst. You know. So he was always all over that grind and. Uh, when he done a hamburger, it was, it was pretty much just chop. I mean, it would really, yeah, it was very, very coarse. Yeah. And then it it was always smashed. It was never formed into a patty. It was a ball (laughs) that you smashed on the, and and so he always had a way and uh, yeah, it was, it was good stuff. And he would agree with you. Don't waste your time making hamburgers with the good cuts, put all the high fatty cheap stuff in there and you're going to be much better off. And I a hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What I'm, what I'm actually going to try, I'm, you know, the cheap cuts and fatty cuts do work. I I am going to play around with some ribeye as, as the, the base and Mm -hmm. just see how that works. But I, I think I'm going to end up back to the same place. You you don't want to spend too much money on the cut. You can make really good burgers out of cheap cuts. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he always went 70, 30 on the, the fat. I, I, yes, absolutely. So, this yeah. throw that 90 stuff, 10, feed that to your dog. That, yeah, that's, yep, that's yep, really good yep, for your exactly dog. Right. Higher protein, less fat. That's good for your dog. It's not good for you. Uh, uh-huh. 60, 40 uh-huh. works for me too. And yeah, I, yeah, I, have a, I keep it. One of the places is it U.S. Wellness or somebody I ordered from actually has what they call keto burgers that are 50-50. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. 
that might be getting a little bit rich. I don't it's, know. I'd it's love pretty to try rich. one yeah, though, it's, at 50 it's, 50. It's yeah. pretty rich. Yeah. The other yeah. thing is make the burger bigger than you want it because it shrinks a lot. Oh yeah. 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 It, it will shrink. And you know, the, the thing to remember is just don't make meatloaf. I, I'll remember that <laughs> the day I die. Please preach that. Don't make meatloaf. Like, okay. <laughs> That's meatloaf. Oh, yep. Most burgers on the market are, yep. are a horrible grind. They really are. Most restaurants yes. serve a yep. horrible grind. It's shocking yep. to me how they, much you can improve a burger once you understand this concept. And you ever notice them uh, putting shaved ice in when they grind it? Um, I, we just learned this the other day that you, that the whole idea of take the meat out and bring it to room temperature before you cook it. <laughs> hell no. Leave uh-huh. that meat as cold as you can. I, well, I, some of my steaks now, I actually have a method that I cook them from frozen hard. Uh, yeah, I've done that before as well. You could, one of the things you can do with a frozen steak you can get the perfect crust on that steak without affecting the cook temperature. So, you know, if you try to put a really hard sear Mm -hmm. on a steak that's at room temperature and you want your steak rare, Mm -hmm. only the very center is going to be rare. And then you see it already Mm -hmm. starts cooking too much into the meat. But if you take a frozen Mm -hmm. steak, throw it in a screaming hot cast iron, I can get an awesome crust on it that doesn't even go a 16th inch into the meat. And then it can be rare from edge to edge. We always take cast iron and put it, the cast iron pan and put it under the broiler and get that just rolling hot. (laughs) Exactly what you said. Ice cold piece of meat, that rolling hot and bam, back under that broiler. Perfect every time. Yep. Yep. See that we we rolled right out of fuel mileage into burger grinds and cooking steaks and that was awesome. Oh uh, uh, yeah, we gotta get back on track here. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. All right, Randy, you're out of here. Uh, we got we got to get back to some calls here. We're gonna go to Iowa. Don, welcome. Hey Joel, how are you today? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I talked with you last week about uh, my good yep. old parameter issue. Yep. <laughs> I. Uh, Picked the truck up yesterday, and they had a couple things wrong. The cruise was set to whatever factory had, so they had to go back in and change those and the, the idle timer. And I talked to the guy. I says, how much of a pain in the ass is it to uh, print me off a set of parameters? He said, I can click a button right here when I'm done. So he got done, clicked a button, and <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I got my parameters. So Awesome. Send those to me so, when you get a chance, and I'll, I'll get looking at your traction help timers and all the other stuff that you're going to need set. Okay. Um, I noticed something on the dash gauge, you know, that little, I don't know, four or three inch panel in the front and center between your speedometer and your tack. Mm-hmm. It, I filled up and it shows gallons to empty and my 160 mile trip is still stayed at 220 gallons. So either I'm making fuel on my trip or is there a setting that that's supposed to change or does that only change when you shut the vehicle off and then it kind of resets itself or how's that work? Mm, Being it's brand new, it's probably still establishing your baseline fuel efficiency. It, this thing should start to update on its own without having to do anything. Um, if it's stuck like that, let me know. Um, we'll try and take a look at it over the air. Okay. You, you You shouldn't have to do anything. It may need to have a certain amount of miles in order to do that calculation initially is what I'm thinking is going on. Okay. Now, the flow below, is is there a 
certain speed that you're going to have to run to see the efficiency of that? Or is that going to, doesn't matter how fast you're moving. It's just, you're moving and that's going to work. The faster you go, the better it 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 will work. the The better it will be. And, and, and the colder, the weather, the better it's going to be. Yeah. So in the winter, you're going to get much more bang for your buck out of flow below and wheel covers than you will on a 100-degree day because the air is just that much more dense. So So speed and temperature make a big difference on that. Yeah, so if you want to maximize your investment after you buy the flow below, drive around at 85 miles an hour in in ice storms, and you'll get the maximum benefit (laughs) from that thing, I promise. (laughs) There you go. So so 57 in Houston at 120 isn't going to show me any better, right? Not not might no, not but be your, doing a your whole typic, lot. <laughs> your typical day uh, across Wyoming, it, it would make all kinds of sense, <laughs> right. it? You know, it's yeah. forty below with eighty mile an hour wind at eighty mile an hour speed. So yeah, there you go. But no, okay. you're, you're not gonna you're not gonna notice a whole lot this time of year, especially down south in a city like Houston. Not a whole lot of wind going on, and it's you know the temperatures up there. Yeah, you're probably not gonna see a whole lot. Okay. Okay. Did did you have a lot of when they they put your flow below on um, with your super super singles? Did they have to do a lot of modification to that? No. What I done was I there the kit that I have is adjustable, and we pulled it so it sets just outside of the tires. The lift axle swings in an arc, so it if you're gonna try to put that thing between the tires and account for the arc on the swing axle or on the lift axle, it becomes a real pain in the ass. So my solution was to set it just barely outside the tires, and then you don't have to worry about nothing. Okay, so is that is that a special, how do I want to say it, like a special order type thing where it's a... Uh, no, no. It, 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 they have it for the guys that chain up where it's removable, so you can just pull it right off. There's a, a like a cotter key type thing that goes into a set of holes okay. on, a, on the arm, and you can just pull it right out. And okay. take it so, right off if you want. So, Kevin, that would be something that I could go straight to your website, and it would be kind of a yep. one-size-fits-all type thing, but only just set this out, adjust yes. it to where it's set out. Okay. Exactly. Yep. Okay. All right. And earlier, Joel, you were talking about the ECM data, about fuel economy and that. Were you getting yours? Do you have something be able to – is it something I, I can have, get off of my ECM data, or is it something you have well, to plug into to get here, yours? Here's what you can do. You can look at, you have trip one and two. And yep. typically what I do is I will do trip one for the week and trip two from fill to fill. Trip two will show you the gallons used in whole numbers. It won't go out multiple digits past the, the decimal point in that display. You can also look at at your truck lifetime information and i'm pretty sure that shows total number of gallons used and it should show you that your overall lifetime and since you've got the truck new this is a great thing to track by just keep looking at that and comparing that to to what you're looking at you can also buy an obd2 dongle since your truck is obd2 compliant um i use link mx and it uh, downloads all that information to my phone, and I can look at it six places past the decimal point in the high-resolution view. So oh, I've okay. got multiple different ways I can look at that. Okay. All right. One last question. I'm going to Sydney to get the mm-hmm. idle-free put on. Mm-hmm. Uh, would it 
be an advantage to tie everything into all the batteries into one system or just leave the batteries that they put on for that idle free? I have not them? tied them. I have not tied them into one system. Um, what I have done was I used the two solar panels up top and I ran them to charge or to help maintain the charge of the idle free system. The one on the hood, I went ahead and I ran to the cranking batteries and they are some that system combines, it connects and disconnects. I'm not exactly sure how that's working, but I think there are times when they are all running together. You know what we tend to do in the RV world, and I think it works better because of my coach, I've got what we call house batteries, and then we have starter batteries, which is really what you end up with when you put a system in like this. Um, In the RV world, Mm -hmm. we run the solar only to the house batteries, but then what we do is we put in a transfer switch. So if I ever go to start my truck and my my starter batteries aren't up to par, I've got a button right next to my seat. I hold that. It pulls power off the house batteries to start. I, I like that setup. Yeah, that makes sense. What you don't want to do is be a, asleep at night and the, the damn air conditioner running and it somehow draws your batteries down and you exactly. can't crank the yeah, truck. I, so I that, like that, to, that's right. why I don't hook them together. I like to keep those yeah, two and, separate. And then, and then have to knock on the... Right. And, Go but, ahead. But then combine them with that transfer switch because it will save you. I can't count how many times on my coach I haven't been paying attention. My starter batteries got weak. Something happened, and and instead, now I also carry a big long set of jumper cables that I can actually go down and connect my house batteries to my starter batteries and do it like that. But it's a whole lot easier to have that button. So I like keeping them separate, but right. then it's nice okay. to have them as a backup. Okay, okay. Um, I guess I'm going to go back and ask another question. But uh, the Maxwell Start, I know they were bought by tesla and somebody else bought them back has anybody heard anything we're, on another we're working on system? it yeah we're we're working on reaching back out to them again and seeing if we can make get a relationship with the new company i tried working with scale start out of germany we weren't getting a lot of response from them um, I, I still don't know if there's a u.s distributor for them or not but we are going back now to try to re- resurrect the the maxwell okay so I, okay. I think the scale start kind of went right directly to the OEMs. My understanding is that some of the newer Volvos that are going to be coming out will have the scale start I, in it. I really it's just going to come with it. It's, it's, yeah, it's just it, the way it is. Yeah. As much as we like having it in our store when we had it, and I, I loved promoting it, this is something I wish the OEMs would just pick up and do. This is such a, a a smart technology. It makes so much sense to do this. And this is something the OEMs could do fairly easily. This isn't a big shift for gotcha. them. So, yeah, I would actually like to see that. But we'll we'll go back and work on the Maxwell for aftermarket as well. Let's uh, let's go to Tennessee. Fred, that, welcome. You got your truck out and running? Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I had to cut him loose. Hey, Fred. Okay. All right. Fred. Yeah. Hey, guys. How you doing? Good. Hey, I'm going to pick on you. I'm going to take advantage of you. Okay. Can Can you skip Go this ahead. and join us on Twitter with this? Oh, uh, yeah. If you guys are going, to, if you guys are going to Twitter, I, I'll do that. Sure. Yeah, we are, and you're always on Twitter. I I wasn't watching, and the calls just piled up on me, and I thought we'd be able to get through them in an hour, but I'm running behind. 
Yeah, no worries, no worries. Yeah, I'll. I'll uh, what time are you going to go on Twitter so I can uh, uh, figure that out? In twenty minutes, ten fifteen or so. Okay. Okay. Sounds we, good. Sounds we, good. All right. See you there. Yeah. Uh, good. Thanks for that. By the way, we might be a little late because I want to get to all these calls if I can. Let's go to Minnesota. John, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. Hey, uh, Joel. So, an older truck, uh, I or N fourteen series sixty. What are the advantages of going with an air dog system versus a fast? The, the air dog, in my opinion, is just an easier install. Now, I don't know a lot about the fast. I haven't personally run the fast. And the reason that I didn't was twofold. Air dog actually had approached me and they wanted me to do some testing for them. And when I was looking at them before air dog, uh, approach me, it was the installation process on the fast was you had to run extra fuel lines and do all kinds of stuff. My understanding is that may have changed. I don't know for sure. Uh, customer service was, a, was another big issue that I've heard a lot about. Um, I cannot personally verify one way or another what customer service like with, with the fast, but that's what was an issue that multiple people had had expressed to me that they were concerned with. Um, so all I can really do is give you my experience with, with the air dog system. It's, it's been pretty much trouble free on all the test units that I've, I've run it on. The installation was very simple and straightforward. It ties right into the factory return line. So we didn't have to go through all that. Um, you know, essentially they do very similar, um, Similar things, removing the entrained air and putting some pressure to the uh, to the mechanical fuel pump to avoid cavitation. Um, you know, get the entrained air out. So you should see at some point with both of them uh, reduced emissions. Mostly, I think on the older engines, um, it's going to be more about uh, improving the injectors and and somewhat improving the timing. Um, because we are getting rid of that entrained vapor or, or air. And so when the injector compresses, you're compressing fuel and not trying to compress air, which doesn't work well. So uh, you right. should notice an overall improvement. It should run quieter. It should run a little bit cleaner. Um, potentially, you'll see a, a bump in fuel efficiency. Um, uh, I, I think both systems probably work well. Uh, the air dogs just been my choice uh, again, because they, they did approach me to do some testing and they have been very, very open with their data and very good people to work with. And in my case with customer service, it's been exceptional. So, um, that's okay. really all I can give you. Yep. That answers question. I just trying to gotcha. compare the two with the, uh, older engines because I've mm -hmm. only heard about the air dog on the newer engine. So, so one thing that, um, I've noticed from some, some guys that are running older equipment, every once in a while you get a guy that says, Oh my God, you know, I picked up a three quarters of a mile a gallon and you're just thinking in the back of your mind, there's no way that can be. And then I got thinking about it. You know what? If you got some wear on your mechanical fuel pump and you yeah. put one of these on there, <laughs> yep. you're going to see a, you're going to see a pretty nice we, bump. And, and, uh, so 
yeah, don't be surprised if, if you've got a boatload of miles on an engine and you got a little bit of wear on that mechanical fuel pump, adding one of these is really going to kick it in the ass. We struggled with that, trying to figure out that phenomenon for a while. Why did we get such incredible results sometimes? And that probably explains it. My experience is the opposite. This These two products, I've always said I, I, I don't want to represent competing products. We've never done it. It, it mm-hmm. just gets way too complicated. And I can even say both of these products are good, but I can't represent both of them. So um, we had sure. a relationship with Fast for a lot of years just because it was the first one I came in contact with. And we did all the research mm-hmm. just like we always do. We got great results. It was a great product. I will agree with everything Joel said. Our, our biggest struggle with it has been in the past. The installation is more complicated, takes longer and costs more. And we did have some customer service issues. They weren't horrible and, and um, we wanted to work through them. Um, I, I did something that kind of upset um, Brad and our relationship ended and, and I still recommend his product. I always have. Um, this is a one where I can say both of these products are good. Um, we've gotten results from both of them. They can be different. So look at, but I don't represent either one now. Um, you know, I, I like both companies and I, I don't want to be in the middle of this one. Um, but it, it's, <laughs> you know, they both work. It, look at both of them as an option and, and figure out what, what works better for you is about the best advice I can give on it. Um, let's, uh, let's try to knock out a couple more calls. Let's go to Texas. Martin, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, call on Tuesday, the one that's hopefully picking up the Volvo tomorrow yes uh you told me to call back and talk to joel i did i wanted uh, to get into I the my main concern more of the nuance on this one okay yeah uh, you said you listened to the show i don't know if you heard but anyway i'm in the process of purchasing a 21 volvo with the 13 tc with a 12 speed mm-hmm. overdrive and mm-hmm. 247 rears mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess my concern is, do I need to re-gear that? Would it be beneficial to re-gear that to a higher speed, lower numeric gear? Probably not. Um, with with the 12 speed, 247 is going to put you right at the limitations of your startability with an overdrive transmission. And we just okay. need to make sure that it is overdrive and not direct drive. If it's direct drive 247, you want to run away from this thing because you're not going to be geared low enough to get the full benefit of the TC. It says on the door sticker overdrive. So, okay, ATO. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like A2L maybe. ATO, O is for the overdrive. AT is direct drive. So as long as you're ATO, you're an overdrive transmission. It's 247 will get you down low enough in overdrive to take advantage of the TC. What What's your operation? What do you do? Uh, step neck. Um, and what's your average weight? Average, I'm going to guess the average range would be 30 to 40. Uh, That's cargo weight, right? You're talking about yeah. The pay- payload on the deck, right? right. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're around uh, say sixty-eight thousand pounds would be a good gross average for you. Yeah. Okay. Probably. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that's a workable number with with the two forty-seven. Here's the difference between what you're going to have is what they call two forty-seven XE, 
what I run with the 13 or the 14 speed I shift is what they call I torque. Uh, the main difference is, is how this thing is going to shift. Uh, XE is going to try to keep you in overdrive much longer because your gear ratio isn't comfortable at the higher highway speeds in direct or underdrive like iTorque is. iTorque will see a hill coming ahead of it, and it'll make the downshift ahead of time. So the performance of the iTorque tends to be a little bit better. Your fuel efficiency will be very good with this truck. There is no doubt. Uh, it's going to hang in overdrive. What are you used to driving? What What are you coming out of? Uh, 387 Pete with a C12 Cat 355s. Uh, okay, so 10 speed this over. Is gonna, this is going to drag down much, much, much lower in the RPM range, and it's going to hang there. And that's something that you'll just, you need to get used to. Uh, your inclination is going to be this thing should be downshifting, and it should not. It needs to just just let it turn out, and you will put up stellar fuel efficiency numbers. It might might take you a minute to get used to that that grinding. Um, with the TC engine, I don't think there's any such thing as lugging the engine, and that's what a lot of guys at first will say. Oh, I'm lugging up. No, there's no such thing. You cannot lug a TC. You can run yeah, that thing right of- until it stalls. A lot of my friends say that I lug this one because I'll run it down to 11, sometimes 10 before, depending on where I am yeah. on the hill. You're, See, that's so. going to that's gonna be your high end with exactly. this. Exactly. You're not <laughs> yeah, even near you can, the ballpark yeah. of lugging that thing. My gosh. If you're used to running, what did you say? It was a C12? Yes. Yeah, you'll giggle the right. first time you run up a hill with this and, and you yeah. let it pull down. You're going to – you'll forget all about your C12. Uh, there's just – yeah, there will be yeah. no comparison on that that low end grunt. So, you know, it'd be interesting when you get in this thing and you start running it, call back in and give us an update. There, there may be possibly some parameters that we might want to tweak on this. If the dealer can get you a parameter list, email that to me and I'll, I'll walk through it and make sure that, because sometimes they put fleets will put speed limitations uh, on things, and sometimes dealers will just do it because that's what they used to do with the VGT. They don't really understand the difference, and so they'll they'll limit speed, and then you'll think, well, this thing doesn't have any power at all down low when uh, it's just yeah. being limited by the parameters. So, um, all right, if you can get that parameter list, the current parameter list, uh, get it, and uh, we'll send it to me. Excellent. All right, we're going to grab another call. We're going to go to Nebraska. Brad, welcome. Yeah. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, Joe, I didn't get a chance to ask you last week when we went off the rails, off the trestle and down into the river underneath the trestle. <laughs> okay. Hey, on those, on the plugger trucks that they did have for sale, the 15s through the 17s, did they have the 13 speed uh, or the 12 speed on the ICF? Yeah, these, and what- these, these will be direct drives. Um, the direct drive is a 12 speed. Uh, they have deeper reduction than the overdrive 12 speed does. So you won't have any issues with startability with it. They'll have the 250 rear axle ratios. Um, most of those should be D 11s. Um, they, yeah, they were. Yeah. I, I think in 18, it'll be probably in the next batch. They, they might have a, a couple 13 speeds pop up with uh, D11 direct drives, but uh, I, you know, I haven't even talked to my brother. I didn't even know he had them for sale until I heard him well, well, hear that they were at the dealer. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and I guess when did, when did Volvo and Matt go to the single box? 
Oh, it's been a lot. Oh, no. I think they they had that right from the get go. Oh, even like in fifteen or sixteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. so. Yeah, that, that was yeah. all. Yep, yeah. Volvo was one of the first manufacturers to do that. Oh, okay, okay. Now I just gotta make it over there. So I'll right. keep it short and sweet. Yeah. Thanks. That's the info I needed. There you go. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. We are gonna grab the last call before we move on over to Twitter. We might be a little late today. No big deal. Uh, Shauna in Missouri, welcome. Hey, um, just real quick here. Um, I'm the lady that called the other day. I just wanted to let everyone know I appreciate uh, the response that I've heard. I've been listening to the show all day. Um, I would definitely be interested in possibly learning more about uh, working with callers that fit on the show. Um, they can reach out to us if they have questions on their free time. Um, hey, let, let yeah. Me, <laughs> yeah, let me do this. We Steve is the guy we're specifically talking about. Steve and I work pretty closely together. Um, Steve runs a fleet over at, at uh, Landstar. He hires drivers, and if okay. they want to learn how to be owner-operators, he, he will run a program like that. So you're working for him as a full employee. Okay. This is no lease purchase. You're not an independent contractor. Your taxes are going to be paid. But if you also want to learn the business, Steve is a great guy to learn it from. So what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, okay. um, I'll put you back on hold and we'll get your information and we'll send it to Steve. Sounds good. Yeah, let me do that then. I'll put you back in the queue. Uh, Morgan, if you could grab that and... Uh, get the information and we're going to put her in touch with Steve Wheeler. So whatever we need to do there. Um, Joel, a couple things before we wrap this up. So you know how we were just talking earlier that the, the people we know are not experiencing any kind of a freight recession at all. Like that this is still a really good year for a lot of people. I, I want to read this and this comes from Craig Fuller and freight waves and they have some of the best data in the industry. Here's what he just posted. And he's he's referencing, remember when I said earlier, I have this data, I haven't verified it yet, 50,000 carriers gone mm-hmm. in 12 months. He's referencing that chart. So I, I am now assuming if he's posting it, it's probably been verified. Uh, but here's what he says. Mm-hmm. The trucking great purge is underway in one of the worst freight markets in history. And that is how this is being looked at. In a lot of ways, it does look like that. And yet, you and I, if we sat down and listed everything you and I know about running a small trucking company, (laughs) 10 trucks or under, you and I would probably agree on about 99% of it. And the other 1% would probably be just we were approaching it from different ways, right? Sure. There's just not that much we disagree on. And it really, really seems like the people who do these things are not having a hard time at all. It's I've never seen an environment like this. I I think this should be called the unskilled freight recession there. That's I like that. It's it's just, it's just the people that don't understand the business. They're the only ones to me that seem like they're really having problems. And there's too many of people that got in when $5 a mile freight. Yeah. There's a ton of, there's too many of them. When there's $5 a mile freight out there, Everybody that had two pennies to rub together bought a truck. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm going to go out and get rich. It's Yeah. Uh, now we're just getting back to normal. What uh, I see is, is clo- in fact, it's still above normal. normal. It's right. still pretty it's, damn good. <laughs> but they're calling it a recession because you can't get on the load board and just pick your $5 a mile load whenever exactly. you want. Exactly. What, you what know? a and, and, crazy yeah, environment. Yeah, so, and listen to this statistic, yep. too. I just saw this. This seems crazy. In the environment we're in right now, 
Um, Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, she -hmm. just posted Mm -hmm. South Dakota now has the lowest unemployment rate in American history. Really? 1.8%. It doesn't yeah, it, I, it, that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me at all. What a crazy it, it, time. It is weird, but you know what? You know what I think may have blown this whole freight thing out of proportion? I think it's just social media. Drugs. Uh, it so could many be. People yeah. that would have never gotten into trucking, reading some of the nonsense that got, and it just uh, blew up, and people just started getting in. And we're just washing out the unskilled social media folks. And, you know, the, um, the people that are real truckers, they're going to be fine. So we've been very active on social media, but the one thing we just don't do, we don't have any kind of a plan for it. We don't think about it. We, we do nothing to increase our followers. You know, there's all kinds of things you can do. There's all kinds of hacks. Sure. And I, we, we just never even yep. think about that. If you ask me how many followers I have on any social media, I don't even know half the time. And, and I'm a numbers guy. We, all we focus mm-hmm. on is putting out good content, helping people. And I got looking mm-hmm. one time on YouTube and I don't do video because I, I don't really like video. And, you know, it's, it seems like drivers have an easier time with audio. They can listen while they drive. I don't want to encourage people to be watching videos going down the road in their truck. So I've kind of stayed away right, from YouTube right. and video. And I started looking and I'm like, how the hell did this trucking guy get 150,000 followers? What is this guy doing? He must it, be it, brilliant. It, so, it is it is crazy because I I see that same stuff like on YouTube and then I get watching the stuff. I'm like, what in the hell it's is this guy garbage. doing? What's he telling these total, it, total it's, it's complete, garbage. Complete nonsense. And they've got a boatload of followers. So the combination of a very strong up market for as long as we had and then the social media presence dragging all these people in, I think that would have what? never gotten the trucking. That, that is our 50,000 right there. What, one of these guys that you know? has this huge follower on YouTube did this thing about how you can gross a million dollars with a straight truck. <laughs> God, come on. Do people fall for this crap? <laughs> I, I, obviously, has to be. I mean... It's on YouTube. It's got to be true. I get a little jealous. I don't have those kind of followers. Not even close. What the hell am well, I doing listen, wrong? Well, listen, when you're in an up market, nobody wants to hear anything that we have to say. You're it's right. It's too much work. It takes too much of their time. Money's coming in easy. These two, two, two guys are just crackpots. They don't know shit. I'm making a ton of money. Until you're not. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, so that's part of the problem. Now, if if we're in a low market for a while, um, I would suspect that, you know, our numbers would probably pick up and, you know, all the million dollar straight truck guys going to be in the poorhouse somewhere. There's no doubt. But uh, a lot of it, I think, is just so easy to get on social media and you think you're doing research and you're you're kind of trusting what these people have oh, to say, and they don't man, know is it bad? Out. It is bad. Uh, like the, the it almost yeah. seems like the bigger they're following, the worse they are. I, I agree. It's you know, when I was trying to help train salespeople, you always had the uh, handshakers and baby kissers, and it's, <laughs> right. it's kind of the same thing. You know, the actual making of the sausage to most people is going to be boring as hell. But you get somebody with a personality 
that comes across well, they're going to get a ton of followers and he can be just, he or she can just be throwing crap out there and you know, it, it, it doesn't matter till the market crashes. Then when the market crashes, then you, you learn the hard way, but um, you know, you, you're, is what it is. you're exactly right here. What, what happens with me is I, I tell people the truth. I, 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 this woman who just called back yesterday, I beat her up bad. I criticized her last mm-hmm. business because I had to. Mm-hmm. I had to be real about where they were. They wanted to go out and buy a truck. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm not telling them you can't, but I had to tell them you're not ready. And, and they owned another business for almost 20 years. And, and I don't want to be critical of mm-hmm. it, but I have to look at it and say, well, if you owned a business for 20 years, why are you in this financial position you're in? You don't have any cash. Mm-hmm. So this is not the time to go start another business you don't even understand. <laughs> but, yeah, especially now. Yeah, exactly. But I, I can help you. And if you want to be in this business, I can get you into it. I'm going to do it right. But it's going to be a lot of work and it's going to take time. It's just much easier to find somebody on YouTube that's telling you what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. Yeah. And, and yeah. That's, that's, it's, that's the big part of it. And. You know, a lot of this technical stuff that we talk about, it's the most boring crap ever unless you've been through this and you've got burned a couple yeah. times. Then all this stuff's real interesting to yeah. you after you've been smoked <laughs> a few times. But when you're you know, a new entrant, all this stuff, all that's bullshit. You don't need to know that, you know. And it, Okay. <laughs> you know, it gets tempting sometimes. I, I can be pretty influential. Um, I, I hope I'm using that influence for a good thing, but every once in a while I look at this and go, you know, I think if I really put my mind to it, I I could probably create, you know, a half a million, um, followers on social media. If I just said what they wanted to hear and I could make an awful lot of money, Mm -hmm. I bet I could retire in two or three years. Mm, It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. But it's just not the right thing to do. I wouldn't be able to sleep. I, I hear you. I, I, I'm kind of the same way. I get guys with the, the older, you know, square nose Peterbilts that are really suffering right now. And they're, you know, at four and five and six miles a gallon. What do I do? What do I do? And I, I, I'm not going to tell you you're going to be able to fix this. I mean, yeah, right. unless there's a huge attitude change, which there never is. Right. You know, they're, they're willing to do one or two things, but it's 10 things you got to, you got to change your mindset on to make this work. And uh, I'm with you. It's, it's real easy to tell them what they want to hear and you probably make a ton of money in a short period of time, but how do you sleep with yourself? Yeah. You know, sleep yeah. at night. It's and, just, and, and if you're crazy, if you're willing to do that, I could also find 15 sponsors that would pay me a fortune. If all I went out and do is oh, yeah. just go out and oh, prostitute yeah, yeah, yeah. their yeah, products, yeah. they'd pay me a fortune, but it's yep. just wrong. Yeah, so there's no, I, I can there's fantasize no about yeah. it, but I, I promise I won't do it. So, all right, we're, <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna switch over to Twitter. This, this will be a fast turnaround. It, all I have to do is disconnect a couple things, walk over into another room so I can change my attitude and then we'll be back live on Twitter. So Joel, you're joining us. Sounds good. All right. We'll see you then. Uh, yep. Okay, we will be right back on a Twitter space. If you're listening live on the app, you can just keep listening. If you want to come over and join us, you can certainly do that as well. Uh, Have a great weekend. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.